Amen. Well, guys, I'm excited to be here this morning in the house of the Lord, everybody. Amen. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a little bit. Uh, Brother Bobby asked me to preach uh, this day about two months ago because he knew he was leaving for a mission trip. And uh, it was a little nerve-wracking because originally we were going to summer camp, so I was like, how am I going to plan a sermon on top of summer camp? And then summer camp got canceled. Now I'm going on the mission trip. And so... <laughs> Uh, it's just been a lot of planning and, and moving things around, but I am super excited to be here this morning in the house of the Lord and to study His Word with you guys. Um, so we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and last week, Bobby talked about my favorite chapter in 1 Corinthians, well, maybe my second favorite chapter in 1 Corinthians. He talked about love. He gave us the definition of love through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and what it does, how it acts, how it responds all of those things we talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. If you weren't here last week, go back and read it. It's an awesome chapter. So this week, we're going to take a trip away from 1 Corinthians, and we're going to dive into uh, one of my favorite letters of the New Testament. It's very short. It's from 2 John. Um, and we're going to unpack love a little bit more by studying this topic a little deeper. So I'll give you time to, to turn to 2 John. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to say that this book, uh, this letter is awesome. I love it. John is uh, addressing an audience we may not understand, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but he teaches us a lot of valuable things in this short little 11, or 13 verses. And he says, starting in verse 1, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that, you should, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I would hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are, God. We thank you for your word that is breathing and active and living. God, that it pierces the soul and, and teaches us truth that we need. Truth that helps us live out the gospel. In action, truth that helps us become who you are calling us to be as children of God. Father, truth that shows us how to live according to your will. Father, I pray now that as we unpack this short 
13 verses together. That you would deepen our understanding of love for you and for others. That we'd more fully understand your love for us. God, that we would live as people who are called out. That we would live like elect people who have been sanctified and glorified. Who have been chosen from the foundation of the earth and chosen to live for you. Father, we love you and we thank you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So you know, in life, most everyone you meet will have a defining thing about them. It may be their skills, their looks, their position, or their talent, their kindness. Everyone that you meet will have some sort of impression upon you. I think we can all agree with that. Every time we meet someone new, there's some type of impression that we get, and we all know what I'm talking about. So let me ask you, when people meet you, what's your defining mark? When people walk away from you and I, what will they remember? I believe that if there's anything that people should walk away from me or any of us knowing, is that we love God and that we love people because we love God. And that those people are loved because they were made by God and God loves them. If anyone should know anything about us is that we love people because we love Jesus and he loves us. And that's what I think that we get out of this book. So John opens this letter in a kind of peculiar way. Um, every uh, New Testament letter kind of has a specific audience that's a little easier to target for the most part throughout studying scripture. You know, Paul would address certain individuals. John addresses certain individuals. And third John, he, uh, he addresses Gaius. You know, he, he, they always address certain particular people. But in this particular letter, John opens up with the elect lady. What does that mean? Well, scholars have debated this topic for years and centuries. Um, some think that this is an, um, an actual woman and her children. Some would say that um, this is a local church. Um, and then there was a third defi- uh, understanding that I really can't remember at the moment, to be honest with you. But I would say that it's most likely a reference to a local church. Um, the reason I say that is because um, he calls her the elect lady and her children, and it also says her elect sister greets her at the end of the passage. So I would say that it's a local church, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is what we learn from this audience, is that God commands this family for their faith and for their love. And what John commands them matters for us. So there's a phrase that I love that Matt Chandler uses all the time. All of the Bible is not to us, but it is for us. And so even though I may not be the elect lady and her children, I can learn what John is teaching this family or this church by what he teaches them um, in this letter. So, the first point of my sermon today is that godly love walks in truth. He says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. John commends this congregation because they are walking in the truth. right? And then he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though, you were writing, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So what I see in this initial first couple of verses is that love and truth are inseparable. 
They are one in the same action. And you may be asking, how can that be? We're going to get in that just a little bit deeper and a little bit later. But love and truth are not inseparable. In fact, today, this isn't a very popular idea. And I know the first way you're thinking it's not popular is because the, the world will tell you that uh, saying that there is absolute truth is unloving and saying that, um, that there are absolute judgments that we can make about certain situations are unloving because there's so many gray areas, right? There's so many ways that we can say... Um, there's so many people that would say that because I believe um, personally, because of my belief in the Bible, that it's abortion is wrong or that, that being gay is wrong or that living in adultery or having a divorce is wrong, that I'm, I'm a bigot and that I, uh, that I hate people and that I don't love them. Well, that's not true. Because the love walks in truth. But on the same side of that, if I'm the hypocritical Christian walking around saying that you're going to hell because you're gay or you're going to hell because you had an abortion or because you're living in adultery or because you had a divorce and all those things, that's not living in love. So where's the line that we draw? Well, I think that it's okay to call sin what it is. But it's also the right thing to call people what they are. And people are children of God made in His image no matter their, their creed, their confession, their race, any of those things. They were made in the image of God from the foundation of the earth. And we are to love them. So how do we walk in love and call out deceit? Well, John's going to address that in just a little bit in this passage. But when I love somebody, it should be within the context of what's really true according to what God says about them, about me, and about the situation. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not speaking of love in the emotional sense like um, I love guitar because I think it's the greatest instrument on the earth, right? Well, if you don't play guitar or you don't play any instruments, you may not agree with that statement, right? Um, so that's not the type of love I'm talking about. That's objective, subjective love. That's, that's an emotional feeling that fleets. Now, I'm talking about godly love that's rooted in truth. And I'm speaking of it in the actual sense, in the action sense, of a moving forward, a walking in truth and love as we love people because of who they are. So that's the first thing I see in this passage, that godly love walks in obedience. Or godly love walks in truth. The second thing I see in this passage is that godly love walks in obedience. Again, some would say it's closed-minded to say that there's a certain way that we must live to truly love God. And while I think this concept could be a little extreme, I don't think it's often wrong. God does call us to holiness. God does call us to sanctification. God does call us to a new life that looks different than the world. That's, that's clear in Scripture. When we become a new creation in Christ, we're transformed into a new person. Well, we should be. And if we're not transformed into a new person, that may be a different conversation we need to have. But when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to, to continually become a new person and turning more and more into who He has called us to be. Um, and throughout Scripture, even Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John command, uh, commends this church because they are walking in truth and keeping the commandments. Over and over and over again, Paul addresses churches and said, you are walking in the truth, you are walking in these commandments, you are walking to the way of God. And when they don't walk according to the way of God, as we read in 1 Corinthians, 
they get reprimanded for it. Why? Because obedience is a key to loving God. Now, we don't be obedient to God in order to gain some merit from God. Because if you're being obedient to God in order to gain some merit from God, then you're not really thinking about God in the first place. You're thinking about yourself. We are obedient to God because we realize our unholiness and His holiness and how He has made those meet in the middle with Jesus Christ and how He has made us His children through the sanctification of Jesus Christ. So we walk in obedience not out of duty, but out of response to God's love for us. In verse 6, John says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Love for God cannot be separated from love for his truth and for his commandments. They cannot be separate because God's commandments are an outward showing of his character and his being. And his being and character cannot be separated. I've been in some very um, different environments where people will tell me, oh, I love God. And they'll praise God every day for, for waking up and, and those types of things. And then they're also out there supporting just some of the most sinful actions that I've ever witnessed. And I, myself, was a part of that all through high school. You know, I, was, I would say that I love God and that Jesus saved me. I knew all the Sunday school answers. I watched all the VeggieTales episodes, you know. <laughs> I knew everything. Um, but I didn't know everything. That was really prideful. But I knew all the Sunday school answers. You, you get what I'm saying. Um, I could play cards Christians like, like nobody's business, you know, because I knew all those answers. I knew all the little quirky Christian trends. I knew all of those things. At the same time, I also knew addiction to drugs and alcohol and and sexual intimacy that wasn't godly. I knew those things. At the same time, I was calling God my Savior and spitting in His face every single day. But the reality is that God wasn't my Savior at that time. He was, or He was my Savior, but I didn't really recognize Him as my Savior. He was just an idol that I thought I believed in. He was a, a magic eight ball that I shook and asked for questions. And why did this not work the way it was supposed to? I didn't know God. And I said I loved God, but I didn't walk according to his commandments because I didn't truly love God. I loved the idea of God. I loved the idea of someone who, who would answer those things. But the reality is I didn't really love God's character because at that time I didn't love the fact that God was a righteous judge. I didn't love the fact that God commands truth. I didn't love the fact that God does have standards and those standards are meant to be kept and they can't be kept, but they're only kept through Jesus Christ. I didn't understand any of that. I didn't love that. If, if I didn't love the fact that what I was doing and finding pleasure in was sin. But the reality is, is that God... Godly love walks in obedience. And, don't, and I mess up every single day. I still mess up. I still find myself caught in sin. I still think bad things about people or, or say things I shouldn't say. I, I still do those things. I'm not perfect. But the, the reality is, is that now that because I'm saved and I'm changed and I have the Holy Spirit living within me, I, I seek obedience. And, 
And when I mess up, I, I don't fall on my face in guilt and shame because of the glory and the beauty of the gospel, but I do recognize that, God, I have really messed up and I have failed you. But God, have grace and mercy on me. And he does because that's his character. And that's his being. So godly love first walks in truth and it walks in obedience. And thirdly, godly love opposes deceit and encourages truth. John makes it clear here that that truth has no partnership with deceit. Um, In this church, apparently, or in this congregation, there were people that would that were coming and denying the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Um, they were denying that he even really existed and that he did what he said he did. But John tells this congregation to stand for the truth and to, to disregard and to, to stand away and stand against this deceit. He commands them to be ready to defend the truth and not to associate with anyone who spreads falsehood. So what's the application for our culture today? Well, first, it strengthens others who may be struggling with doubts and questions about these issues and distinguishes true believers from those who hide behind a facade of Christianity. If, if we have anything to do with deceit, if we're welcoming deceit into our life, whether that's uh, false teachings or false ideologies or unbiblical ideologies that we try to bring into our faith then we have to question whether we really are believing what we say we believe or we're just hiding behind a facade of Christianity. You know the Barna Group does studies all the time about the status of Christianity in America and what they're starting to find is that Christianity isn't actually declining as much as people say it is merely the facade of Christianity has declined so what do I mean? Well, we grew up in the Bible Belt, right? You know, when I was in high school, everyone I knew was a Christian. You know? I'm serious. I didn't really know a lot of atheists in my high school. There was a couple. You know, I grew up in a high school in South Georgia, and we were primarily white, and so everybody loved God. That's what they said. You know? Um, after high school, some of those things started to go away. People started to find themselves, and I'm, a lot of my friends who were Christians were all of a sudden atheists, you know? I don't but anyway, um, what they're finding is that the facade of Christianity is declining, not Christianity itself. Is, it is declining, but not as much as we thought it was. So what I mean by that, well, they use an illustration of, of these two guys who call themselves Christians and this one guy that called himself an atheist. Well, after they grow up, um, and the atheist is antagonizing the Christians, one of the Christians comes over to the atheist side. And the atheist looks at that one Christian and goes... Um, haha, now there's more of me and less of you. And he said, no, there's always only been one of me. There was just one pretending to be me. And that's, that's kind of the reality that we live in, unfortunately. There's, there's this huge, there was, it's, it's narrowing down, which is both good and bad, but there was this huge facade of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I live like hell during the week and come to church on Sundays. If I even do that, I may just say I love God because that's what the trendy thing to do is, right? So, calling out ungodliness and standing against ungodliness strengthens others who may be struggling with doubts and questions and distinguishes true believers from the facade of Christianity. And secondly, it draws those living in this false reality to repentance and belief in the gospel. 
so my question is, how does standing against someone's position love them into truth? Because those two things don't seem to go together. Right? We live in a very combative society. Right? Like, if you disagree with me, you automatically hate me, or you're a bigot, or something like that. So how do I disagree with somebody and love them at the same time? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. Love for them is, should be focused on what God says about me, about them, and about the situation. Um, you know, how do I respond to things that happen? How do I respond to the fact that Roe v. Wade is overturned? Do I write terrible, mean comments on Facebook about all these women? Or do I love them? Do I say, ha-ha, now you have to carry this baby to term, or do I volunteer at the pregnancy care center? Or at least pray for these women. Do I, do I spit in the face of people who can no longer make their choice to, to murder a baby, or do I say, let me help you, let me, let me try to provide for you, or at least let me find you some answers? You know, how do we respond to things like that? Because there's, there's a right way to call something wrong and still love people. When you look at Jesus at the woman of the well, he, he, he approaches this Samaritan woman who, first off, that was an issue because she was Samaritan and the Jews were racist and didn't like the Samaritans. So that was the issue number one. Second off, she was a woman. And in that society, women were highly marginalized and they were treated as property. So Jesus, this Jewish man, approaches this Samaritan woman who is, by the way, not only a Samaritan woman, but living in very promiscuous relationships and he approaches her and doesn't say, stop sinning, you promiscuous woman. He says, give me some water. And he talks to her and he loves her. And then he says, what she's doing is wrong, but he does it in a way that's loving and, and reveals truth to her and calls her to repentance. And what does she do? Does she walk away going, oh, you just hate my lifestyle and you hate my people, you, you racist Jew who just thinks you know everything better than me? Or she walks away proclaiming Jesus as the man who told her everything she'd ever done. That's crazy. Because in this society, when you try to approach sin, it's like you committed a hate crime. It's World War III, you know? Um, but there is a way to love people and to point out the truth. And I'm not telling you that I'm the expert on that at all because I, I suck at that sometimes. I struggle with that sometimes. So I'm not saying that I have all the answers and I'm not telling you right now like, Oh, it's easy. You can do it. But it, it's, it's the reality. You know, Christians, a lot of times, will act just like the Jews did in Old Testament times, where we have the upper hand because we know the truth, and we believe the truth. And it's really easy just to cast down people with the truth and to say, you know, I, I know the truth, I know the word, and what you're doing is wrong, and I can be mean to you because I love God. <laughs> what? can't be mean to people because you know God. In fact, you should be the complete opposite. You should be the most loving person in the room when you know God. So in the beginning of this letter, John uses the phrase walking in reference to truth. It's a simple word with massive applications. What we believe should determine how we walk. I titled this message Creed and Confession because what we believe is our creed and how we walk is our confession. 
confession is not merely just words coming out of the mouth. That's what the word literally means. I confess something. I say it out loud, right? But if it's if it, if I say it out loud, and it doesn't come in line with reality, then it's not really a confession. It's just a false statement, right? I have pink hair. Is that a confession? No, I have brown hair. I'm not wearing a wig. And my hair's not naturally pink. No one has naturally pink hair that I know of. And if you do, that's really cool. <laughs> um, you know? Um, it, it, confessions that don't, aren't, aren't in tune, that aren't in tune with reality are just a bunch of garbage. Right? If, if I say that I love God, and I'm not seeking to live out in a way that shows I love God, then I'm not truly living out the confession that I make. That may be my creed, but that's not my confession. And oftentimes, your confession is really shows what your creed is. You know? Uh, I have a lot of friends who I love to death, but their creed is uh, the American Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible. You know, they, they have this creed of, uh, I'm a, a Republican agenda or uh, Democrat agenda, agenda 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 and they, that's what they live out as their identity and their reality but that's not what your reality is your political party or, or your your preferences to those things do not determine who you are in Jesus Christ now I'm not saying that there are some things that we shouldn't vote for I'm not saying that don't get me wrong don't don't hate me for those things but I am saying that when I get to heaven and Jesus says uh, God looks at me he's not going to say good job you voted Republican every single day of your life, or you uh, walked into that church building every Sunday, or you did that, or you tithed, and you tithed more than 10%, or all those. He's not going to look at me and say that. He's going to look at me, and if I didn't place my faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to spend eternity in heaven. I don't really know that's how it's going to play out. I'm just, you know, <laughs> I don't really know if it's going to be like a conversation or what. You know, I, I know that we are going to get judged, you know, based on what we've done. So I, don't, I don't think it's going to be like a casual conversation, but I do think you know, that God's not going to look at those things that we consider good and say that's why we're getting into heaven. We're only going to get into heaven if we trust and we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what we believe, if we believe the gospel, that should determine how we walk. It goes back into living in the commandments that God has commanded. So saying that we believe something is not enough, it's more than a simple confession of the mouth. It's a lifestyle brought out of a new life that we find in Jesus. Our creed or confession should determine our conduct. When you look at Job in the Old Testament, when bad things happen, the question is, did Job let his situation determine his theology? Or did he let his theology determine his situation? You know, Job instantly, um, Job instantly let his theology determine his situation. For the, for, at the beginning and then some things kind of like the icy and he started thinking he could talk back to God and God kind of put him in his place but you know he, he says you know uh, God the Lord give us and he taketh us away he, he, he confesses that God is the one who gave him anything in the first place so he could take it away if he wants to I don't know why I said that in the King James but <laughs> you know that's that's what he says you know he, he let his theology determine the situation then he gets a little dicey in the end with his friends start antagonizing him and that nagging wife of his and he starts thinking that maybe my situation does determine the truth about God and then he starts trying to back talk God and God 
you know, God comes down and throws the hammer. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And Job's like, whoa, okay, you know. But that's the reality that, that Job's creed had, was sometimes in line with his confession and sometimes not. So would Job's beliefs about God overcome his circumstance or his circumstance overcome his beliefs? That's the question that I have. When you in, encounter a circumstance in life, are we going to seek to live that circumstance through what God says about me, about those other people, and about the situation, or about what I think, and then bring God in after? You know, I, I think that in the world right now, Christians have the biggest opportunity to stand up, especially in America. You know, I, I don't really like getting into political things. But for over 50 years, it was federally allowed, and if you don't like what I'm about to say, I'm sorry, but this is true. It was federally allowed to murder babies simply for, the, simply for convenience. Now I get there's some medical things that are involved. Sometimes, statistically, it's not that high. But they were, it was, it was, abortions were allowed for convenience for over 50 years federally on, on a federal level. And now, they're not. Hallelujah, praise God, right? Now states have the ability as sovereign states to make the decision whether abortions are not going to happen. And a lot of states are putting a trigger ban and they're not allowing them to happen. And over the past three or four days, I've seen some of the most hateful, racist, bigotry comments that I've ever seen on Facebook of people saying remarks about hallelujah, these terrible, whatever people can no longer do these things. And I've even seen them comparing, just, just awful things I'm not even talk about. And it's like, you missed the mark. And I don't want us to miss the mark. Now, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know what my part plays in that. I haven't figured that out yet. But I do know that I now have the opportunity to love on people who can no longer do what they wanted to do that was wrong, and now they have to find options. And what am I going to be when they, if they come to me? What, if I run into one of those people, how am I going to respond to them? You know? And a lot of times people like to make the response, well, they made a choice when they had sex with that person. Well, I made the choice when I spat in God's face in high school. And he gave me another chance. The gospel is about redemption and about grace and about love. So the choice that they made is the choice that they made past tense. So what's the choice that they're going to make now? Is their choice going to be to trust and believe in the promises of God because of the way that you interacted with them as his vessel, as, as his fragrance? Or is their choice going to be to live in self-hatred and self-doubt because of a mistake that they made because they know that people don't love them? Or are they going to go find other options and illegally kill that baby because you didn't love them the way you should have? The gospel is a gospel of redemption, of love. You know, when you redeem something, it's buying it back. I can't remember, I think we were at Passion, and the speaker uh, told a story about, he had this, I don't know if it was Passion or not, but he had this Les Paul that he loved. No, it was summer camp, summer camp last year. He had this guitar that he loved. It was like this pristine Gibson Les Paul, perfect shape. He, his wife bought it for him for his birthday. They, their friends pulled money together to buy him this really expensive guitar. And he loved it, he played it, and it got stolen. And, um, you know, he, he files a police report, and they're like, they're he's like, you know, I'm never going to find that guitar again. Well, he gets a call from the police, hey, we found your guitar. 
It's at this pawn shop down the road. So, okay, cool. So he goes down to the pawn shop and he's like ready to pick up his guitar. He's like, that's my guitar. And, he's, and the pawn shop learns, no, that's my guitar. I paid for it. He goes, no, but that's my guitar. I have the police report. He says, I don't care about the police report. That's my guitar. I paid for it. So now he had to buy back that guitar that was rightfully his because it was stolen from him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. You were created for God's glory and his purpose, but sin and Satan stole you away from him, and your personal pride stole you away from him. And then he decided, even though that you took yourself out of that situation that he put you in, that he was going to pay the ultimate price to buy you back. And that's the same thing he does for those men and women that make those mistakes every single day. We've got to live that reality out. Father, I just, I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for your love. God, I thank you for the gospel that's so true. God, I thank you for the fact that you love us even when we constantly let you fail you, constantly let you down and fail you. God, I thank you for the fact that your gospel is a gospel of redemption and it provides hope for a lost and hurting world. God, we have the answer. God, when that young woman who's underage gets pregnant and she goes, what am I going to do? What's my answer? What do I run to? God, I pray that if we run into one of those people that we wouldn't marginalize them and make them feel bad about themselves. That we would provide them with the hope and the goodness and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ through the gospel. Father, I, I don't say that we should that we should not stand against sin, that we shouldn't oppose deceit. John makes that very clear. You make that very clear in your word. But there's a way to oppose deceit that glorifies you and brings you into the picture. Jesus didn't eat with sinners to say that their sin was okay. He ate with them to provide them mercy and grace and love and to point them to confession of faith that point them to repentance God that's what the gospel does it calls broken people like I once was out of darkness and into light and every person in this room they may not have done terrible things but they were once in darkness they were once dead people walking around not knowing what to do and the gospel is what saved them and brought them back to life that's everyone's story in this room I don't care if you were saved since first grade or you got saved when you were 40 years old the story is that you were once dead and now you are alive God that's the truth that you've done in our lives so let's go out there and do something about it Father we love you we thank you we pray all these things in Christ's name